0: Welcome to this week's installment of Lost Origins. Homie CK,
1: how are you? Holler. Uh by the time you guys listen to this, someone will have won the Super Bowl.
0: I know. It's gonna be uh I don't even know what to expect. I mean we got a lot of sports ball stuff going on tonight. I can't place a bet on who's going to win. I don't really follow that, but I just want to tip the no proverbial idea. hat to all the teams out there that really gave it their all to try to track down that golden snitch and, you know, do the thing for their the house. The rest
1: of you are just not as magic. Mm-hmm. And clearly you didn't make it mm-hmm. and you can't all be a champion. Except for this team that I don't know yet. That
2: Gryffindor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, sports. Uh, Serious sports ball. Going yeah, now. I don't really know much about sports ball. So. And we are actually recording this at a time that I think they might even be kicking balls through things. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the tip-off just started. Opening pitch <laughs> <opened> of the <laughs> Cedar Bowl. It's about to come down. It's going to be the thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So sports, not what this podcast is about. Thank God. Um, This podcast is brought to you by our good friends over at Inner Traditions and Baron Company, a supporter of the show from day one. These guys have it going on. If you guys are looking for a solid read to jump down a rabbit hole to just peel the wig and just get your read on. Head over to intertraditions.com and just peruse the library.
1: Guys, come on. By now, everybody who's into this space knows these guys love and support you. Um, get over there. Uh, real books are awesome. Yeah. That's one of the things that I think both of us have learned. Um, and I think just like seeing how they've you know done the entire support of this community for a long time. Send them some love, innertraditions.com.
0: Yep. You over there, check out uh, hits from like Robert Buval, Andrew Collins. I mean, the the list goes on and on. Uh, Several folks who have been on the show. You guys need to check it out, innertraditions.com get your read on. Also, another supporter of the show that we need to tip the proverbial hat to this week is The Great Courses Plus. I know that we've been beating this drum for a hot minute now, but you guys, it is well-deserved and it's a rhythm that you guys need to get in step with, right? So if you head over to thegreatcoursesplus.com, you guys are going to have access to so many different just top drawer courses, curriculums, topics, genres, all the things where you're able to jump down any given rabbit hole but like we've been saying from day 1 it's like you're in an Ivy League classroom without that like student loan it's all nuts. that tuition following around
1: i've after you know doing this for now a couple months pretty regularly i think both of us going to any online kind of education with some skepticism but it's one of the most like simple easy accessible just like every single one of the things that i'm looking into is way over my head originally and then after you know seven or eight courses or seven or eight you know uh, topics deep i'm already doing things at a level that i haven't done since
0: yeah the course that we're going to focus on this week is redefining reality the intellectual implications of modern science and if any of you out there have enjoyed season two or season three of this show, this is going to be your jam because we are going to be able to learn so many different things just about what the nature of reality is. Um, and, and there's going to be so many topics that are just locked up and in line with different guests that we've brought onto the show and explored their work, their research and whatnot. And one area that I found personally fascinating was just the focus on computers and big data and how they can now just like Predict what we're gonna do in so many situations. Like, am I am I alive? What I mean, we, we've Pretty had nuts. conversations <laughs> about that. Yeah,
1: we've talked about free will, technology. You know, whether or not things that we do are real. What is the substance of the choices we make? We, you know, I feel like we've explored some of these things. Mm-hmm. But I will say, probably without having gotten through this course yet personally, that they will absolutely bring it to a different level for us. Yeah, um easily one of the best things that I've paid for. Um, and I think the cool thing here is we're trying to make it even cheaper for you guys. Uh, if you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lost origins, you're going to get three months unlimited, all their courses, 30 bucks.
0: Right. I mean, that is one hell of a deal. I mean, we're talking 10 bucks a month. I mean, if you just, I don't know.
1: Just do it, guys. Yeah, It's worth it. We're not trying to waste your time. It's absolutely worth every moment. And frankly, if you don't think so, 30 bucks is nothing.
0: Thanks for pulling me back on the rails, too. I was going to try to come up with some long-winded metaphor that <laughs> would waste everybody's time. But, you know, just do the thing. Do it, guys. The greatcoursesplus.com slash Origins, all one word get in there, let us know what you think, let us know what courses you guys are jumping into, and let's uh, let's riff about them on social media. So, this week, we have one hell of a treat in store for you. Like we had mentioned last week, we are going to be talking to Dr. David Miano today, and so this is going to be a pretty interesting conversation because for the life of the show, we've brought on many alternative thinking minds throughout the world that are uh, just like spearing the charge on different theories, research, uh, topics, whatnot that they're digging into that kind of challenge the status quo, so to speak, right? And so, Dr. Miano, um, I mean, this guy, he he has a YouTube channel that that is is widely followed, but he's an ancient historian, and he specializes in in the histories of the Near East, Egypt, Greece, Rome, India, China, the list goes on and on. This guy earned his PhD at the University of California in San Diego in 2006, and he's the author of How to Know Stuff, which that sounds like the title of a book I would write. I like that. (laughs) Uh, And I mean, he has several anthologies of ancient works designed uh, specifically for classroom use. Um, This guy, Currently teaches at the state college in Florida, and he runs the YouTube channel that I mentioned. That's called the World of Antiquity, and so this features his travels to ancient sites. But it also is a series that debunks a lot of common misconceptions within ancient times. And so I think he does a really good job of like tactfully and uh, gracefully approaching a lot of the alternative schools of thought out there.
1: Yeah, but and, he, and he's also pretty blunt. Yeah. you know, and I think uh, to some degree. As an you know, academic historian, he feels like he has a really serious responsibility to clear things up with certain groups that may look at things from different angles. And I think he does it in a really thoughtful non-dismissive mm-hmm. and also just trying to challenge people who are trying to challenge things.
0: For sure. And so I think it's going to be a lot of fun because when we get him on the horn, you know, we we like to ask questions and we also like ourselves a little bit of uh controversy, controversy. controversy. Mm-hmm. And so I want to make sure that we rip through uh, Sumerian astronomical knowledge, uh, Atlantis if we have time because that's always fun, uh the great pyramids, I mean just uh, as, as much as we can get through in an hour with this guy, but I want to pick his brain and just see what his take is is on these topics so
1: let's get so them on the done. horn let's go
0: all right good afternoon dr. Miano. how the hell are you
2: I'm doing great guys. Thanks for having me on.
0: Oh no, it's our pleasure. We're really really excited to welcome you to the Lost Origins roster. I think this is going to be a really really fun conversation. Really excited to just get your take and, you know, on the, all these different concepts and theories that we're going to rip through today. Uh, it's, it's always fun to just, you know, get another perspective and make sure that we're looking at things from from all angles on the show. So this will this will be good stuff.
1: And so, Dr. Miano, um, you know, for those who follow your work, uh, you know, in various different channels, um, they'd know that you teach at State College of Florida, Manatee-Sarasota. Um, you are a, uh, a PhD at University of California, San Diego. Back in 2006, way long ago. Uh, you host a pretty awesome YouTube channel, The World of Iniquity or Antiquity. Sorry, World of Iniquity, but a totally different thing. But uh, world, <laughs> <laughs> world that, of antiquity. That sounds interesting. Yeah, too, that sounds, yeah. sounds like the news <laughs> these days. <laughs> um, uh, you know, you travel to ancient sites. You uh, also, you know, spend a lot of time debunking common misconceptions about ancient times. But for those who maybe haven't seen those things or haven't followed your career, you know, can you give us a breakdown of, you know, how did you how did you get involved in all of this? What really got you started back in the day, and, and what kind of things do you focus on nowadays?
2: Okay. Yeah. I've always loved history. Uh, it wasn't one of my favorite classes, uh, through school and, but I didn't get into that right away. I tried a few other majors, uh, and then finally settled on it. And initially I was just thinking, maybe I'll teach uh, high school social studies or something like that. Uh, but, um, boy, the more classes I took on the ancient material, the more excited I was. And, uh, I think we all can agree. Ancient history is really fascinating. I found it way more interesting than some of the more recent, uh, subject matter. So, uh, the, the older, the better for me. So I just, I still, and to this day, I'm so glad I did it because I still am just as much in love with the subject as I was back then. And, uh, and even though, um, I know that uh, I may have differences of opinion with many of your listeners. Uh, We all share the same love. So uh, I'm coming here uh, as a fellow uh, enthusiast, you might say. Um, So yeah, I went to um, the University of California, San Diego for my uh, PhD and uh, studied under a a great team of professors. And uh, I've been teaching ever since. Um, I started up a nonprofit a few years ago called Scola Antiquorum, which uh, is designed to make uh, ancient history available through online courses, but I'm still trying to get that off the ground. And now I'm, I'm kind of using my YouTube channel to build an interest in that. So awesome. within the next year or so, I will start offering uh, online courses on various ancient subjects. That's so, cool. Really so cool. Yeah. That's great. And uh, so I, on the college level, so it wouldn't just be like superficial kind of uh, classes. These would be deep dives, you know? Right, right. Um, but yeah, my, my YouTube channel, I just started it up in the uh, beginning of July and um, I got these going on the channel. One is on uh, a series of travel videos. Mm-hmm. So my plan is to travel around to various ancient sites around the world and uh, build interest in those places. Uh, just finished a trip to England and in December, I'm going to be going to the Yucatan Peninsula to examine the Mayan ruins. Nice. So I'm looking forward to that. If you want CK and I to come with you, and we you can just probably work that uh, out. just throw some tickets yeah, 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 We'll yeah, be fine. there, man. <laughs> well, if the, if this if these travel videos turn out successful, I'll probably start bringing people. Uh, so you you never know. Oh. I'll put your name on the list. Awesome. I like being on
0: on a list, a good list. (laughs) There's there's bad lists out there too.
2: (laughs) So before we get super. I don't have a literal list just yet, but I will have one. (laughs) Sure, sure. Uh, My other series is is, uh, these uh, debunking videos, I guess you could call them. I've been avoiding the word debunked because everyone kind of overuses the term. But uh, so I say, like, I'm an examination of the various topics. And so I've been taking some uh, other, I've been addressing other YouTubers' videos. Um, and there's two reasons for that. One is because a lot of people are watching those videos and I, you know, maybe I'll build some interest that way if uh, some of the viewers of those videos watch my videos, but also because since a lot of people do watch those videos, there might be some information going around that I think uh, is not accurate and, and needs to be uh, corrected. So sure. uh, that's why I do it. So I'm trying to pick some interesting subjects um and I've got a few out now. I've got one on the pyramids and one on Atlantis and one on the uh cylinder seal VA two forty three with the solar system and all of that. Yep. Uh and I'm working on one right now on um whether india was the first civilization uh in the world which is uh, some people believe so uh it's on that yeah
0: i've spent some time on the youtube channel there's definitely some really really interesting videos that you've pieced together um i didn't like take it as like the debunking swing at all it was more or less like a let's kind of take a step back and uh throw another perspective uh you know at it and it's it's really cool there's the when you mentioned the pyramids video we are going to talk about that today uh you talk about other people consuming that content i believe that one has what like 14 plus million views at the time that you produced that, that film or that, that video, is that correct?
2: Yeah, that, that was, that's like a viral video. Everybody was watching it. And, uh, you know, and I, I had it shared with me like, Hey, what do you think of this video? So, so, so basically I, I, I'm telling people what I think of it.
1: <laughs> sure. And, sure. I, and I think, you know, it's almost like a public service, right? To, to the extent that there, there are absolutely, you know, room in the, or there's room in the debate for plenty of perspectives. But I think to some of the point you were making a moment ago, there also are so many people who just, you know, are going to put things out that are absolutely not substantiated. Um, it's one thing to have theories. I think we all have theories about things and it's fun to ruminate about them or dig into them, but definitely appreciate, uh, somebody who's taking a, a really serious approach to trying to find the truth of something, not just something that might feel comfort, controversial or sure. feel good or something. So thank you right. for doing that.
2: I try very hard not to, like, I'm not doing it to make fun of people or to, uh, you know, score points. I'm I'm trying to, like, say, let's step back here and just think this through for a minute, sure. you know, step by step. And uh, can we, are we going to, do we come to the same conclusion if we really uh, think it through? And so it's more like that. Sure. And, uh,
0: are you opposed yeah. to the next great Twitter battle or? Because
2: that could, that can be fun too. Huh? <laughs> Those are always fun. For, uh, surprisingly, I thought I would get more blowback, you know, uh, but I haven't uh, received a lot. I mean, I get some some people that getting uh, angry about it, but not many. Sure. Uh, so that's been pleasant. Yeah, for sure, surprised. for sure. Because yeah. the
0: internet is, I mean, it's mean
2: as hell. Oh, man, it's, it's a is, little gnarly. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. So before we get super heavy, I really wanted to do just like a quick discussion of a few of the mis. Conceptions regarding ancient Mesopotamia, specifically. Okay, so there, there's many components of ancient history that seem to get lumped into the the one Sumerian bucket, if you will. And I thought that it would be a really good jumping off point to get your professional insight on uh, a few examples. Those being like the Library of Ashurbanipal, the winged bulls, which are often referred to as as the Anunnaki, the origination of the you know the Sumerian calendars and timekeeping systems, and basically like the advanced nature of the Sumerian civilization as a whole. Um, I, I know there are some wires crossed there, and I think it would be very beneficial for the audience if if you could just break us off uh, on, on on what you're actually seeing here when you look under the hood.
2: Okay, yeah, I think there's a few common uh, mistakes people make when they're when they're dealing with the subject of ancient Mesopotamia, and it's understandable uh, that they would. But one uh, common one I've seen is. Uh, kind of um, mushing them all together. So like whether they're Sumerians or Assyrians or Babylonians and uh, maybe even the Persians, uh, you know, everything is kind of lumped together as if it's all the same. But we're talking about different cultures that live during different time periods. And uh, so you have to separate and, and also think about the chronology and when this was. Uh, people um, consider just kind of homogenous and I think that does lead to some mistakes. Uh, the other common mistake, I think, is people looking only at the art and not reading any of the documents. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, because obviously most people can't read the ancient languages. So, what what are you going to do? You're going to look at the art. You know, oh, look at these cool creatures and all that, and develop ideas without consulting or without consulting uh, enough the written sources we have on these things that can shed some more light on the subject. And that's yeah. why. I made this one on the cylinder seal with which, you know, goes back to Zechariah and believing it's the solar system. Uh, but there's so many documents we have from the ancient Mesopotamians to talk about their views of the of the universe and how it's constructed and all that, that uh, can shed a lot of light. On what these images could be, you know, on these uh, various uh, cylinder seals. Sure,
0: sure. So, like when we look at the the library of Ashurbanipal, for for example, a lot of people assume that when that site was uh, excavated, that's where a lot of the cuneiform tablets were actually, you know, like recovered, and 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 we were able to start to parse that language and understand what we were working with there. But that's an, that's an incorrect assumption, correct? It was mainly Assyrian tablets that came out of that library. Is that, is that a correct understanding? Well,
2: well, it's a little of both. Cuneiform, of course, is just the script. Sure. You can, you can write Assyrian in cuneiform. So when I say this was our Syrian tablets, yeah, they're, they're written in cuneiform, absolutely. But they're not Sumerian language, okay? So the, the Sumerians invented cuneiform and they used it first for their language. Uh, then uh, the Akkadian speaking people started using cuneiform for their language. Uh, and Akkadian then developed into two branches, Assyrian and Babylonian. So the Assyrians and Babylonians also used cuneiform to write their language. Sure. And there were other people too, lesser, you know, more minor countries and all that, that also used cuneiform to write their language. So it's one of those universal scripts. You could you could write English in cuneiform if you wanted to. Uh, so one of the first things you have to do when you find a tablet is like, which language is this in, you know? Uh, sure. And then... <laughs> So the Library of Ashurbanipal, yes, all, this is the greatest find of cuneiform tablets we've ever had, but they're not Sumerian. You know, they come from a later time. Uh, Ashurbanipal he ruled in the uh, 7th century BCE, so uh, much later than the Sumerian heyday. Uh, so we just have to keep that in mind when we're when we discover things like that.
1: So just to, to kind of poke at this a little bit more as well, um, you know, you see people really looking back on some of the uh, iconography and the artwork of uh, different Sumerian sites. And one of the you know characters that people often point to is this uh, the idea of the Anunnaki. Um I just I'm interested just to get your perspective on you know what what sorts of things do you think about those figures um do they you know specifically as it might relate to like uh being given timekeeping knowledge or the you know sexadecimal system and some of these other kind of advanced things that the Sumerian civilization had where where does that fit into your research at all or is it something that you just don't deal with
2: Um well I mean as far as the Anunnaki goes uh, well, let's let's say let's put it this way: in ancient cuneiform tablets, Mesopotamian writings, uh, the Anunnaki are not really a prominent um, feature. You know, what I'm saying they don't talk about them a lot. Um, they talk about usually gods by their individual names. You'll get all kinds of individual gods' names. But, uh, but there aren't that many um, terms that the Mesopotamians used for a grouping of gods. They have the Anunnaki. They have the Igigi. Uh, there aren't really that many groups of gods. And I think it appealed to uh, Zechariah Sitchin that you know, at least it's a term we could use for this group of gods. Um, but uh, it's you know Anunnaki is, um, is a later term. Uh, we think that maybe it goes back to a Sumerian word Anuna, but again, uh, these gods were not. Um, I think people are attributing to this group of gods more accomplishments than the actual documents say. You know, you know what I'm saying. Sure. Uh, and the Gigi okay. gods, for example, are more important than the Anunnaki. Um, they're the they're higher gods. So, so yeah. But I mean, this just general idea of. Um, assume, we call this euhemerism, um, where you assume that the gods were real people. In other <laughs> words, that the that the ancient people misunderstood, and they met real people uh, whom they didn't understand and seemed magical to them and started worshipping them as gods this is an uh this became very popular in the 60s and 70s and that
1: that happens to andrew all the time all you know he'll show elite. he'll show up at a place and they'll be like what are you he's <laughs> well, like baby like i'm just C-T-T-O, a man you
2: know <laughs> the return of the jedi exactly uh, yeah, yeah.
0: But you're, you're you're basically speaking to like the
1: cargo cult <laughs> phenomenon though right it's very much like the cargo cult yeah, phenomenon yeah, yeah, right
2: yeah, yeah. The problem I have with that approach is, I mean, I suppose it's possible that, you know, legendary figures could be turned into gods later on. But to just assume that's like that was the most common thing that happened, like all the gods have those origins, I think um, is misunderstanding the ancient mind. Um, for them, they looked at the features of nature and they personified those features of nature mm-hmm. the sun was a god the moon was a god the stars were god uh, you know the earth was a god you know the storm was a god these are all natural a phenomena that they just personified in their minds and they're like thinking of them as, as intelligent spirits that's really where the gods come from
1: and we just have this tendency to kind of anthropomorphize the uh figure or the sort of we want to contain a particular god or a particular god narrative like inside something that sort of resembles some sort of bipedal or anthro kind of format right
2: yeah and, and, and instead, as time goes on, instead of what some people assume is that uh, earthly, physical creatures be turn into gods in, in, in people's minds over time, what in fact happens is these, these natural forces get made more human over time. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So they write stories about them and they, 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 they turn them into themselves, uh, basically. So I think that is the more realistic way of looking at uh, the religion.
1: Sure. Um, And so I I think, you know, something that's sort of ancillary to religion, or at least maybe gets pulled into some of the discussion about religion, is this uh, sort of seeking in the cosmos or the sort of celestial mechanics that a lot of ancient civilizations have, you know, some knowledge of. And I think just, you know, continuing thinking about the Sumerians, there are definitely a lot of people in this space who, you know, have a wide ranging series of, set of theories about the Sumerians and their um, either extreme or potentially outsized knowledge of of celestial mechanics um and so i'm just wondering you know from your perspective what kind of knowledge do you think the had was it was it a uh, sort of uh, synoptic for their time um was it immense is it something that we ascribe to them too much what what do you think about that yeah uh
2: yeah i'm there no doubt they are an impressive civilization um and they're the first that we know of but Uh, I think their knowledge has been exaggerated, Um, and I I think it's great to be impressed by the things that they were able to do, but uh, I think sometimes people are inclined to give them more credit than they deserve. (laughs) So um, we have – well, it's a little difficult with the Sumerians because we don't have a a lot of their astronomical documents. We have documents from a little bit later times. We have uh, quite a bit from the Assyrians and Babylonians. Uh, which we can say, oh this probably developed from earlier Sumerian views so you can only go far go so far back uh, but using the Mesopotamian documents that we have they're astronomical documents and they have documents that talk about this the, the cosmos and how it's how it's, how it's put together, we can see pretty clearly that they knew of only five planets the, the five planets that you could see with the human eye. Um, so, you know, and, and that they believe that the sun and the moon and the stars, not only were the, that they were gods, but that they were really not that far away because they believed that the earth was covered by a heavenly ocean and that the sun, moon and stars were on this side of the ocean. Like, so there it isn't that far up there, you know what I'm saying? And the same thing with the planets as well. Uh, and then on the other side of the ocean, above the ocean, that's where all the gods were and all of that. Uh, but so it's a it's a primitive view. And they also believe that the Earth was flat, a flat. It was basically a flat circle, a flat disk uh, with an ocean going around it. hmm. And um, and it's and of not course, right. Yeah. Just to be just, just to well, just, sure, just to put our
1: stake in the ground here, it is not, not right. Flat. You're not going to blow us blow our mind and be like, guys. <laughs>
2: and they were right. Okay. okay. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> no. I'm not a flat earther. Okay. Cool. Uh, Thank. That's cool. But I'm sure They'll the flat earthers are going to love saying uh, that. Um, if we get any yeah, any no,
0: messages around um, that, we'll forward them to you. Though. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely forward it to you. Okay.
2: As they explored more of their world and as their knowledge grew of how big it was, the, the, the circle that they're picturing as the earth did get bigger in their minds, like, oh, there's more here than we thought, you know, and so they expand the circle. Yeah. Uh, but it still remained a circle. And the Greeks had the same view uh, of, the, of the world. Uh, very similar, I should say, sure. uh, that it was a flat circle. Until you get to Aristotle, people like that who started arguing, no, it's a sphere, you know.
0: But let's take it one step further, right? You had mentioned earlier in the conversation some of the depictions uh, and the seal specifically that Zechariah Sitchin is, is basically parsing to be a map uh, or a representation of the solar system. Kind of walk our audience through this seal specifically, maybe even one step back, what is a seal as opposed to, you know, one of these ancient depictions and then walk us through why it's it's not a depiction of the solar system. I thought your take on this was was fascinating as hell.
2: Okay. Uh, so, a, a cylinder seal is, um, is basically um, the seal itself, which is um, what we find in the ground, is a, um, it's usually made out of bone or stone or sometimes metal. Uh, and it's, um, it's like a the shape of a kind of like a little pillar. Um, and what they would do is they would roll it out onto clay to make an impression. And on the seal going around it would be the identifying mark of the person who owned it. It could be a, a, an administrative official, could be a businessman, uh, somebody who wanted to like, I guess you could say notarize whatever an, uh, an object. Uh, so they would roll it out onto a piece of clay. Um, very commonly, you'll find it for like uh, merchants who uh, would, um, they'd have like a big vessel, a big jar of something, right? And they would put a, um, a clay seal uh, uh, at the top of it and then they would roll it out. So you would know that they, you know, this is packed with freshness, you know, <laughs> These are
0: Jeff's spiders. Do not eat my lunch.
2: Best by 700 BCE. <laughs> yes. Uh, but what you'll often see online or in images is because we don't actually find uh, the, the clay that they roll out on, we call that a ceiling or an impression. Uh, but We call it a ceiling. But we don't find those very often. We just find the seal itself. So what we do is we'll roll it out so you can see what, it, what the seal looked like. You know, so you'll see these images of a long strip, usually, of the seal rolled out. But that long strip that you're looking at is modern. It's not, it wasn't found archaeologically. We just want you to see what it looked like, you know. Um, So uh, it's not the same thing as a tablet, which is a tablet is what they would write the cuneiform on. But anyway, yeah, so Cylinder Seal um, VA-243, which has this image that Sitchin believed was a solar system, has uh, two men on it, actually three men on it. Well, I shouldn't say men. One's a god, and two are probably men. Actually, no. Um, This is one thing I, um, a little adjustment from what I had in my video. I was talking to a Sumeriologist about this. Uh, But the one is a god, so I I did say that in my video. Uh, And he is presenting to someone a plow right? It's a very primitive looking plow, but it's a plow. He's given them, and we believe this may be Ninurta because he is the god often attributed uh, as giving humans the plow technology. Yeah. And then what you'll see the other two people, there's someone leading another person by the hand and the person probably leading the other person, it might be a minor god. And then the final person is probably the person uh, who owned the seal. And, um, and uh, in this case, his name was Ili elat there's writing on the seal, by the way, and his name is on there, Ilyalat. Uh, so maybe he was in the agriculture business or something like that. We're not really sure. And there's not a lot of information on it, just his name and so forth. So, yeah. um, but uh, And then uh, right in front of his face, okay, uh, above his head kind of, is this image. You'll see it looks like people have interpreted it to be the sun with a bunch of planets going around it. Uh, but in fact... Uh, scholars believe that these are all stars. And the reason is, first of all, uh, the biggest star there can't be the sun, because we already know what the sun looks like in cylinder seals and other art of the period. Uh, and it has a specific look. And it has, uh, the sun always has these wavy lines coming out of it. And this one doesn't. This one looks like a regular star that they used to draw. The other uh, circles don't have points around them. So people think, oh, they must be planets, not stars. But the Sumerians and uh, and later Babylonians and so forth uh, often drew stars as just plain old dots. Uh, okay. So you'll see that. And, uh, and what I mentioned in the video most likely is that we're looking at a grouping of 12 stars. And in their astronomy, they used to divide the uh, heavens up into three bands named after a god each and uh, in each band they they would have there were these 12 month stars and each month one of the stars would uh, rise in the morning it would be the brightest star so probably what you're seeing here is the 12 month stars with one of the stars rising and that's why it's bigger than the rest anyway that's the best educated guess but it cannot possibly be a solar system number 1 because that's not the sun and number 2 because they only knew about five planets okay um so and they also believed that the earth was flat so whatever we're seeing here whatever in any cylinder seal whatever you see it's going to be a depicting something that they could observe from the ground
1: I can't help but, uh, as I'm thinking about this, and I am in no way saying this to uh, belittle the Sumerian culture, uh, but when I think about it as like, you know, young kids, sometimes they'll give you these like drawings of like, look, I mean, they just, you know, they had a science class yeah. or something and they start painting and they're like, look, I made this thing for you. You're like, this kid doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> this That sun doesn't have any wavy lines. <laughs> There's only five planets. It, what are you, a third grader? This is crap. Get back to me when you actually take a course. So, <laughs> so Also, you're grounded. Yeah. Yeah, you're grounded for not knowing anything so um <laughs> uh, appreciate that disambiguation for us um because i think there's some subtleties there that are that are valuable um so to shift gears just a little bit um since i feel like you're on a good roll here just addressing some really key aspects that i think are important to listeners of the show and people who are really interested in, in this topic in general one of the areas that we've had a lot of discussion with different guests um you know, over, over a long period of time, and also just most recently spoke with some different experts on this, um, is this sort of series of different cataclysms, right? That there are these cataclysmic periods, specifically one of them that we focus on is the younger Dryas. And, you know, we, we've we had some discussions about how this potentially had some destruction of advanced civilization attached to it, uh, something that, you know, is often synonymous with the uh, destruction of Plato's Atlantis. No, I, I know that's a topic that uh, you've spoken on quite a bit. And so I'm wondering if you could, you know, kind of just walk through what you think about Younger Dryas, Great Deluge, um, kind of this antediluvian uh, mythos and and just worldwide flood myths in general. And how does that fit into the rest of your work?
2: Uh, well, as far as the, you know, the Younger Dryas and the geology is concerned, I, I defer to the experts on that. That is not my field. So, uh, you know, the, what the scientists say happened. I'm gonna go with that because I trust their judgment uh, as knowing what they're talking about. Now things may change in future, I don't know. But I can tell you more about like the myths, the uh, legends and so forth associated with the flood because I do deal with with writings. Sure. Um, yeah, so, well, first of all, um, I do think, I mean, it's very interesting that all throughout the world you've got these flood legends and there's all kinds of flood legends. Um, But that is something, I think, to be expected uh, because uh, people are fascinated by natural disasters and they write about natural disasters all the time. Um, I think we may be making a mistake if we automatically assume that every single one of these flood legends is talking about the same flood. How do we know it's the same exact event? You know, we don't. Um, And a lot has been made of the similarities between the flood legends. But I should emphasize that the ones that are really similar are the ones from the ancient Near East and from India. I guess you could include mm-hmm. them, too, where you have someone building uh, a boat or an ark or something like that and bringing animals on board and, and so on. Uh, but the other flood legends are very different. They, they don't have that similar story. China's flood legend doesn't have an ark or anything like that. Uh, the American flood legends. And, and there's another problem, too. And that is many of these flood legends come from oral tradition. They're not written, right? So we have these traditions that have come down, been handed down orally from generation to generation, and and they weren't written down. We don't have, like, as old of documents as we have, say, from the ancient Near East. And how how old are they really? The longer something is transmitted, uh, you know, story, whatever is transmitted over generations, without being written down, the more likely there is a chance that's going to get changed. Mm-hmm. It's going to get altered. So, you know, you know, play telephone or whatever. Yeah. Things get changed as you pass it down by word of mouth. So we don't know how old these legends are. We don't know what the original form of the legend was. Uh, that's all. Those are all open questions. And so it's very difficult to say, oh, oh yeah, they definitely all go back to this, uh, the same single event. Uh, we, don't, we just don't know that. You know? sure. sure. So let me, if, if I could play devil's advocate really quick, because I'm sure
0: some of our listeners at home are wondering this. They're like, okay, so why all flood myths though? Right. Like we, we don't, uh, to my knowledge, we, or my understanding, we don't see a worldwide common denominator of like volcano myths or like tornado myths. Right. Um, and some of the, some of these flood myths uh, that are found like in Mesoamerica, for example, I mean, they, they're not apples to apples uh, to, to the ones found on the other side of the globe, but they do share some commonalities, right? So I just wanna get your take mm-hmm. on, on why would they all point to flood myth as a whole? Just curious.
2: Uh, I'm inclined uh, to think that it's because floods are one of the most common natural disasters. Um, certain regions of the world, they don't get earthquakes like other regions. Uh, certain areas don't get tornadoes like other okay. areas do. Uh, some areas get hit by, uh, uh, well, It's going to say tsunamis, but that's kind of like a flood too. But anyway, there you know sometimes things are just regional, but a flood, you know, you could pretty much count on. Um, They do talk a lot about storms everywhere, and everybody gets storms. Mm -hmm. Another thing to consider too, uh, and I I know this is true with uh, some of the uh, the Maya legends, and that is uh, the when it finally did get written down, and we do have a version of an American flood myth or whatever, it was after the spanish conquest and so there's a possibility that they heard the flood legend from the spaniards and it influenced their own legends you know and so that's a lot of these traditions could be influenced from from the biblical uh standpoint or whatever because they came into contact with people who told them this fascinating story about the great flood uh so there's that issue too yeah for
0: sure So let's uh, continue this uh, conquest into the flood myths a little bit. And more specifically, I want to start looking at some of Plato's work, uh, those being uh, the the Timaeus and the Critias, right? So I want to know what your take is on on these writings, these two bodies of work. Are are they strictly metaphorical? Um, And also, what is your take on like the Egyptian connection there via Solon's time spent with Egyptian priests? um, And then also how that basically becomes the origin for the Atlantis story.
2: Yeah. Um, well, as, yeah. As as people may already know, these these two uh, books are, the, are our oldest uh, writings on the Atlantis legend. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question comes up: Did Plato make it up, or is it re- you know is it a real story that was going around? And um, although I can't give you a definitive answer on this, I can tell you what I think is the most likely scenario. Do it. Uh, <laughs> first of all, Plato is known for. Um, making things up. Now, not because he was trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes, because these documents that he wrote, these books, are not intended to be histories. They're not intended to to tell you about the true past or anything like that. All of Plato's works are in dialogue form, and they're like little plays of characters talking. And Plato is not one of the characters, so you never get an authorial voice in his books. The closest you're going to get is from his character Socrates. Now Socrates was a real person, but in Plato's books, he's just a character and Socrates will say things. But in the case of Atlantis, it's not Socrates who's telling the story of Atlantis. It's one of the other characters who's just a character. And you know, what gets me is that some people will take his name is Critias. uh, Some people take Critias's words as if they are Plato's words directly to us. You know, like like Plato is writing to his audience and he's telling them about Atlantis, but that's not exactly true. Plato is has invented a character who is then telling the story about Atlantis. Yeah. And we should take it in the same way that we would if we were watching a movie or reading a book, a fictional book, where they say, oh, did you hear about, you know, whatever? It's, it's not the author telling us that it's real, you know? And we know in Plato's other books, he does make things up. He has different stories about the origins of the world and all of this that are, you know, just obviously can't be true. Um, like for example, the one where, oh, this is kind of funny. I, I had a commenter, um, you know, say, you know, argue with me on this, on my YouTube video. And, uh, he said, uh, and I brought up this this uh, this case. Well, he. What about this myth about the origins of the sexes, where uh, it used to be that people had f- like four arms and four legs and two heads, you know, and that uh, they were one. They were all genders combined, but then they got chopped in half. And uh, that's how you get your, your males and your females,
1: you know, they were, uh, it, they were explaining that to be like that, that is real and you uh, should, no, yeah, I, was, I
2: was telling, I was telling this person that C obviously it can't be real. Okay. And then he came back and said, well, I believe that too. And not in those exact words, but uh, that- also the earth is flat. <laughs> <laughs> God, so I, I want four arms
1: really, too. I, mean, I feel was, like if
2: you believe that I really couldn't, I couldn't help. I'm don't not, you feel <laughs>
1: like we, you know, if that were the case and like evolution at some point gave us four arms and four legs and then some horrible, uh, chromosomal detachment event separated us from those arms, God, that next generation would probably feel so whack. Right. It's like a oh, cool two arms, bro. Yeah. yeah. Have fun getting yeah. half of what you're going to do today. Done. You only get half the bracelets. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And that, that comes from another character in, in the story, uh, a different story called, and, and that was Aristophanes, who was a, a comedian. But anyway, he, um, the real Aristophanes was, and that's. But his explanation was, and that the reason why, uh, two, you're looking for your other half, and the reason why some people are heterosexual and some people are homosexual is because when they were together, they either were had two males together or a male and a female together, Uh or a female and a female. And that's why, you know, but obviously Plato didn't really believe that. Uh, Another thing about the Atlantis story that Critias tells is, unlike, say, for example, the Trojan War legend, which everybody knew, it was a common view, Plato didn't make that up, but uh, when people talk about the Trojan War in Greek literature, they just assume you know about it. You know, they like mention character, oh, you know who Menelaus was, you know about Agamemnon. They don't really explain it. But here in this Critias explains like, as if you never heard about this before. Right. He's describing the Atlantis story. It's like, as if you never heard about it before, which is an indication to me anyway, that this is the first time it's appearing in print. Okay. You know?
0: Okay. And uh, so is it pretty common then though for him to weave in like historical figures and historical characters into his bodies of work? I mean, oh yeah. That, that's why we see Solon who who we know is an actual person from history who actually did spend time in Egypt. Is it, that's, am I tracking you correctly there?
2: Yes, right. So just like the real Aristophanes probably didn't tell you the story about finding your other half. Uh, he just put it into Aristophanes' mouth. So here he's probably putting in, the words into Critias' mouth. Uh, same way. And it, the same thing it does with Socrates and so forth. He uses real people as characters uh, in addition probably to some fictional characters too, sure, sure. Uh, just to make it more interesting, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that's just kind of his technique. So I don't think we should take him that seriously. Although I, I hate to do that because it would be really cool if there was an Atlantis. Right, right. So let's, let's
0: talk about Atlantis, right? So like that story specifically, when, when, when you're looking at it, whether it's through Plato's work or, or just, you know, different mentions of it throughout history. Are you looking at that as like straight up myth that has just been romanticized and to, to build on your previous point about the game of telephone, right? It's just being, con- you know, continuously growing and evolving and becoming more magical, or is it possible that at some point there was a kernel of truth under the hood here and that it's referring to an actual you know, lost ancient civilization? Is, is it possible that, that that sites that sites across the globe, like Gobekli Tepe, are evidence Potential evidence of, of you know Atlantean refugees, so to speak, being displaced and, and rebooting civilization. What's your what's your take on uh, on all those things, Doctor
2: Miano? Well, I mean, as far as Göbekli con- uh, Tepe is concerned, and and other places, um, how would you tell if the founders of that place were from Atlantis. We don't really know what was in Atlantis. We don't have any artifacts from Atlantis that we could say, okay, so here's some Atlantean artifacts. So let's compare it with Gobekli Tepe and see if there's any similarity. We can't do that. So just to say that is just kind of just pulling it out of a hat. You know, it's not really, there's nothing there's I, no real basis for it.
0: I think where a lot of people make that connection is the younger driest impact events and then also that date.
2: So the timing.
0: Yeah, um, and that, that date coincides with the date that we get from Plato as, as far as when Atlantis fell. It's like a lot of people see that as is, you know, very very uh like convenient almost, right? Where it's like, okay, these line up here. So if these younger driest impact events are what created this massive flood, if that was a, oh, there was a worldwide flood, you know, the refugees, the people that, that came out of that event were displaced. And at some point they're going to land somewhere and, and have to reboot civilization. And so I think that's why a lot of people that are subscribing to the Atlantis story as being factual point to sites like Go Back Lee Tepe and say, okay, is this really what we're seeing here? But I, I completely understand with what you're saying about, okay, we don't have any like source materials to compare it to. Right.
2: Yeah. Another thing to keep in mind is that that's, you know, at at that time, uh, there are like we're a lot, there's a lot of different places that were uh, being inhabited around the world that scholars have identified uh, including some pretty like there some uh, large neolithic sites might, like Chatalhoye or uh, Jericho um places like that Ein uh for sure i mean they might not have the impressive uh, little uh, you know stilas that uh, gobekli tepe has but gobekli tepe isn't like I mean it's really cool. It's a great site. But it isn't like you're not looking at like a massive city or something like that as far as we can tell. Yeah. There's not like big walls around it or towers or anything like that. Um it's within the realm of possibility that the locals of the area could have made a place like that. It was it was it was within their technical technological know-how in the Neolithic period to construct a site like that. There's nothing uh, like shocking about it. Yeah. It's you know it's a it's an impressive site. Uh, and it has added to our knowledge greatly of that period, but there's nothing in there that we're like, oh, this is impossible. The, the people of this area could never have made this. How would
0: they do this? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So what about Atlanta specifically then Dr. Miano? Like when, when you hear references to that in your mind, is that, is that mythological references? Is it, you know, not an actual ancient lost civilization that's kind of been forgotten from humanity's chronology? Um, like like what's, what's your take on that? Unpack that for us if you could.
2: I, I hate to be so skeptical, but I'm of the opinion that there wasn't an Atlantis cool. <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I will say this though that after Plato wrote that, it fascinated people even in the ancient world, and there was a tendency even among them to search for it. Like, well, maybe Plato was right, you know. And I and I do think that um, people may have looked for it and found places and and uh, and made descriptions of it uh, that uh, get added to the legend. You know, I can picture it with a lot of uh, stories, you know, you just imagine like a father and son walking along the road and seeing some ancient ruins on the side of the road. And daddy, what's that? You know? Yeah. And, oh, well, oh, you never heard about the giants that used to live here or whatever it might be. And the dad would tell them the story, you know, but I think a lot of it is just based on what they found and what they saw. And then they made up stories about what it could be. And that's how a lot of these uh, stories get propagated, sure. you know.
0: Sure. So kind of one of the last things I want to I want to rip through with you today, which we've enjoyed the hell out of this conversation. Thank you so much. Is like just the the great pyramids of Giza. OK, so there's been loads of debate around their construction, their purpose, the epoch in which they they were erected. Um, One issue that many people out the wild have regarding the Great Pyramid is that it was actually a tomb uh, but that there's, it, it couldn't be a tomb, right? Because there's a lack of typical characteristics of tomb found within the Great Pyramid. Uh, additionally, the, the whole cartouche de- uh, debacle of, of Colonel Vice that, that whole thing is sketchy at best. Um, you know, so there's some definitely some interesting takes on uh, just like what its purpose was. Um, what, what were we really looking at here? Is there ancient technology at play? Or was this thing really just a, a burial chamber? And so kind of walk us through your work surrounding this site and your take on the theories that challenge. Challenge the stance of the Great Pyramid having served as a tomb.
2: Okay, uh, yeah. Um, well, first of all, with, with this um, claim that oh, it doesn't have the characteristics of tombs. Well, what are the characteristics of tombs? Um, well, I, I guess the main characteristic would be, have to be that have to be a uh, a body in there, and obviously there wasn't. There isn't in any of the tombs, sure. um, pretty much. Uh, but there is a sarcophagus. I mean, and we recognize it as a sarcophagus. It looks just like a sarcophagus, um, so I, and I know that a lot of people say, "Well, maybe they just reused it." You know, maybe they turned it into a, a tomb later. Like but an here's Airbnb, the thing. almost for <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Because you there's a lot of pyramids. I mean, there's a lot of pyramids. Now, Occam's Razor would say that okay, you've got all these pyramids, and we know a bunch of them were tombs. It just would make sense, you know, pyramids are tombs. Um, And then the burden of proof would be on people who would say, well, this particular pyramid is completely different from all the other pyramids. Well, why? Why is it completely different? So, well, it doesn't have any writing on the inside or art. Well, there are other pyramids that don't have that either. The the Great Pyramid is not the only one. Uh, The early pyramids from the Fourth Dynasty um, don't have writing on the walls. They don't have hieroglyphics inside or uh, or art. so they just didn't do it at that time. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, it's not like a. You can't use it as a clue if you have other pyramids, that do it. You know. Okay. Um, and um, uh, another one you might hear is, uh, well, I mean, I don't. I I don't know if you've heard this one, but uh, a lot of people can't uh, think it's just too fast that they could have. Built a great pyramid like that. It was just they didn't have the tech. The, the ancient Egyptians, you know, those those dirty primitive Egyptians, they couldn't do anything. And so <laughs> that's kind of how they talk about them. Like it's impossible. They could not have possibly done that. And yet we can see you know, the evolution of the pyramid design over time from the Step Pyramid of Djoser in the Third Dynasty to the failed pyramid attempts of Sneferu in the early Fourth Dynasty, the Bent Pyramid, for example, yeah. um, the one at Meidum that's fallen apart. Um, and then finally he gets it right with the Red Pyramid, which is at a an angle that makes it easier to make a pyramid, but at least it's the first really good smooth-sided pyramid. And then, you know, a generation later, you start to have the ones at Giza, you can see how they gradually learned how to build a pyramid. Um, and yeah, it took, uh, some people think a few decades is too short of a time. I, I don't, I think I um, actually it was more than a few decades, but I mean, I don't know, maybe 500 years, but um, it's a fairly long time. I'm looking at how much evol- uh, technology has evolved in the last hundred years here. Right, now, you know? right. I mean, even um, in the last
0: two, three years, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy.
2: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't see any reason to doubt it. You might say, well, well, um, you know, uh, Khufu's name was probably forged, maybe. I, I saw a great video by ancient architect- architects, by the way, on this topic, and um, uh, it was pointed out, which is a good point, that the name of Khufu on that graffiti, even though it's not official, you know, hieroglyphics, the name of Khufu on there is um, his full name which at the time of Howard Weiss was not known. Right. So how would he be able to forge it if he didn't know the full name of Khufu, you know? Um, so that's something to keep in mind as well. For
0: sure, for sure. So,
2: and, oh, and go ahead. One other thing. Um, this pyramid within, I guess it'll be within a century after it was built, was called the Akhet Khufu. It was named after Khufu. And we have the diary of mirror a document we found fairly recently which talks about them build taking building material materials to the akhet khufu all right so um i mean i guess you could argue well khufu uh, appropriated it uh, okay but it, it definitely was used by khufu um whether he built it or not okay you can argue with me but it was definitely khufu's pyramid yeah uh so yeah.
0: So when you look at like the the, the passageways and, and within within the Great Pyramid specifically, uh, or the within the Great Pyramid specifically, you know, and we, we see their alignment to certain celestial bodies and whatnot. Like, what what do you think is happening under the hood here? Is that the Egyptians just being you know very much in tune with uh, the the astronomical implications and and the 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 components that fit within their frameworks mythologically, or like? Have you spent much time looking at those and and contemplating those, researching those? What's what's your take on on those chambers and those shafts? Uh,
2: my view on the shafts is um, that you know when you can change the time period so that they line up with certain celestial bodies you're kind of cheating a little bit you know what i'm saying <laughs> so it's like oh you know you know the shaft was pointing to you know whatever constellation at this particular time period isn't that amazing well that's cuz you chose a time period where it would line up um, so i think there's a lot of room for fudging there okay. the fact is they were both plugged up i mean they were covered over that you you know there was no you know like in other words they don't go to the outside of the pyramid so my thinking is that they were probably just uh, for air while they were building it. And then after, when they were done, they covered them up. Yeah, um, That seems to me the most logical explanation sure, for them. Sure.
0: And, and you know, we, we typically, with, within the conversations that we've had on the show, we go down a lot of rabbit holes and, you know, we don't always have the opportunity to speak with somebody that has such a vast uh, understanding and academic background within these sites and, and these topics. And so one question that I have for you has to relate to just like, Resonant frequencies uh, and and different you know energy patterns found across the globe at different megalithic sites. Um, you know there's 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 been a ton uh, of research going down in the space of just like sound in general and the implications that it has to you know whether it's making construction more 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 p- possible, more efficient, um, and and a lot of spaces in that in that arena that we're we're only really starting to understand is it in your mind like coincidental that that is a thing that people are pointing to at the great pyramid specifically um, you know i know i know a lot of people out there look at the great pyramid as being uh, like a like an ancient power plant for example when you're doing your research and you come across that stuff like what what where do you, where does your mind go what do, what are you looking at there
2: well i haven't i haven't done a ton of research on that particular subject except with regard to the claim that the great pyramid um, sits at a spot on the earth where I, I, like um, the, uh, the magnetic forces of the earth are the strongest yeah. or something like that. I, I was unable to find any scientific study to confirm that. Yeah. So I'm not even sure where that argument um, originated because I couldn't find any science to back it up. Interesting. If someone could show me a source on this, I would love to look at it. Uh, but that's something I haven't been able to confirm.
0: And I think that you've given the audience uh, just a lot of like solid things to contemplate, think about and work backwards. And I think a lot of it ultimately points to like if I were to sum up today's conversation in, in one word, I think it would be context, right? Like whether we're looking yeah. at, you know, the ancient texts uh, of, of Sumeria, Mesopotamia, <clears throat> you know, uh, like the Assyrian text, all the things, or we're looking at the construction of the Great Pyramid and, and where it sits uh, as it relates to energy across the globe, like solid sources, solid citations, kind of following the breadcrumb backwards to make sure that, that we're all pointing at the same source, source of truth, uh, is paramount, right? Is that, is that a, a solid yes. parsing and understanding takeaway for today?
2: Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And, and we, we academics are not the enemy. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, sure. And also just to let everyone know, um, uh, I have never been asked any at any time in my career to hide any information from anybody. <laughs> you know we're 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 totally free to study whatever we want, to come up with whatever theories we want. Um we have complete academic freedom uh, to research and study and and hypothesize, and that's actually encouraged greatly. In our field, so mm-hmm. it's not like there's some kind of big brother telling us you're not allowed to do that, or you know you're not allowed to say that. Uh, I've never experienced that before. It's good to know. Good to know.
1: So so many things to think about today. Really appreciate you digging deep with a lot of these things. We know you have uh, the world of antiquity on YouTube, but uh, what are some of the other things you're working on, and how can people find the rest of your work online?
2: Well, um, like uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, my my by primary. Um, work right now is trying to get my uh, first online course uh, together. And it's going to be, by the way, on ancient Egypt. Um, So I'm going to do a two-part series on that where I just delve very deeply into Egyptian history uh, from the beginnings all the way up through the end of, uh, well, up to Roman times, probably up to Cleopatra or something like that. Um, And I think that'll be a lot of fun. So look for that in 2020. Um, In the meantime, yes, on my Twitter account, um, which is uh, Dr. David Miano. You can uh, find, I usually have archaeology news every day, uh, things that are discovered. If you're interested in new discoveries and what archaeologists are finding, I'm usually posting about that. Uh, you can also find me at Dr. David Miano on Facebook. And uh, of course, my big, uh, the b- big place to go, I have my, well, I have my website, davidmiano.net. But I would say YouTube is where I would encourage you to go the most. Uh, World of Antiquity is the name of the YouTube channel. And, uh, And you could also search for my name. I'm sure it will come up. I could use subscribers. I'm trying to get to a thousand so I can uh, start running ads. <laughs> for sure.
0: So, for sure, And yeah. we'll make sure that we link back. If you're if you listening to, to this episode on you know Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, whatever, make sure that you hop over to lost-origins.com forward slash media, hop into this episode's page, and then from there, you'll be able to just scoop links straight to the YouTube channel and to Dr. Miano's awesome. website, all the things from there. So, listen, Dr. Miano, this conversation was awesome. CK and I had a blast. We really enjoyed picking I did brain. Uh, thank you so much for, for carving an hour out for us today. This was, this was rad. We appreciate it.
2: It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me guys. Anytime. You be well. All right. You too. Cheers.
1: Well, guys, he's a doctor. Listen to him. I, I think one of the coolest things about this show is that we get to speak with people who don't fundamentally just dis- like, don't agree with each other yeah. on all the things they think. And in many instances, more so than anything, just giving us one more perspective Um, even if it kind of challenges something you've believed for a long time, I feel like that's what the show's all about. Yeah. yeah, Pretty refreshing.
0: Yeah. It was cool. And I really enjoyed like just a change of pace, I guess, if that makes sense, you know, like it's, we, we explore a lot of, uh, alternative schools of thought on the show and I don't know, it kind of felt nice, but also a little weird.
1: I mean, by the same token, we have a bunch of people who come on here and don't really have that alternative of a take That's true. On, That's true. on things. They're just, you know, pretty diligent researchers in their own right. It's just there are certain third rail topics like Anunnaki, there are certain topics like Atlantis that are particularly divisive yeah. in, in this, you know, world, broader world of alternative research. I think it's interesting to see where those lines are versus somebody just being like, "Hey, I've seen giant skeletons. Yeah, they were big. They were really big people here. Something's going on. Right. Um, Or, hey, there are these stones. They're older than you think. Yeah. And in some instances, it's like, maybe they are just as old. Yeah.
0: And so if you enjoyed the conversation, I would encourage all of you to hop over to YouTube, check out the World of Antiquity, his channel. You guys will dig it. It's got some cool stuff on there. And you know what? If there's stuff on there that you guys, let's say, don't agree with, um, let us know, throw a note in our bucket, and we'll connect you with Dr. Miano. And you guys can hash it out, you know, Katy Perry, Taylor Swift style. Did I do that right?
1: I think I did that right. You are so hip. Uh,
2: yeah,
0: I,
1: I, don't know. I don't know. be
0: oh, least... oh, fiance now. She'll be proud of me, though. She'll be proud of me. Be proud of me. Nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) So next week, dude, check this out. We We have Tom Carey coming onto the show, not to be confused with the uh, younger brother of Jim, but- um, (laughs) He did it. He did it. it. Put it in there. Put it in there. No, but seriously, Tom (laughs) obtained his PhD in anthropology from the University of Toronto. Uh, He's an Air Force veteran, and he's held a top-secret crypto clearance. Um, He's also been a mutual UFO network, or MUFON, for our friends who like, um, you know-
1: what are those called? Acronyms. Acronyms. There it was. I was going to say acronymophiles. Mo- I was going to say uh,
0: monogram, but that's
1: all you monograms out there. <laughs> you out appreciated there. that joke.
0: <laughs> none, none of that was correct.
1: Um, but <laughs> I think monograms are what people get when they're like really concerned someone's going to use their bathrobe. You know, oh. they're like no, this is B O X's, not yours. <laughs> Hands
0: oh, off. Ooh, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> I see a practical application for that. Indeed. Anyways, um, so yeah, he, he, he was a uh, MUFON State Section Director for the Southeastern Pennsylvania uh, chapter from 1986 to 2001. Um, and he has co authored several books with his partner in crime, Donald Schmidt, who's not going to be able to join us on the call, but we're going to get him down the road. Um, some of those books include UFO Secrets, Insight Wright Patterson, Witness to Roswell, Children of Roswell, The Roswell Incident. And so we're basically going to be talking a lot about clapping dim cheeks.
1: Aliens mm-hmm. people.
0: So we're going to be discussing their latest book, The UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson, uh, the events that began at Roswell at Area 51, but ended at Wright-Patterson, which is an ultra top secret Air Force base in Ohio.
1: So psyched to get into it. And we're also going to rip through
0: Hangar 18. If you've not jumped down that rabbit hole,
2: no buckle up. About that. Yeah,
0: you're, you're going to you have a good time. It's a lot of fun. So. Aliens, guys. Aliens. Straight up. So Make sure that you guys smash the hell out of that subscribe button. Join us next week as we connect with Tom Carey to talk about all things aliens. And until then, I'm Andrew. I'm CK. We challenge you to question
1: everything.